Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. At first glance, 2nd century Bishop Irenaeus of Lyon and Joseph Smith, the founder of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, don't seem to have much in common. After all, Irenaeus saw himself as defending orthodoxy against innovation, that is, the historical continuity of the Church, while Joseph Smith understood himself as restoring that which had been lost. However, as Dr. Adam Powell shows in his fascinating study, Irenaeus, Joseph Smith, and God-Making Heresy, published by Fairleigh Dickinson University Press in 2015, they and their communities shared a great deal. Deftly combining theology and the social sciences, particularly ideas about heresy and the sociology of knowledge, Powell shows how Irenaeus and Smith managed the existential and physical threats to their communities by developing ideas of deification, which, while different in that Irenaeus saw God as ontologically different from human beings and Smith did not, held out a similar present and future hope for their beleaguered communities. I hope you'll enjoy the interview. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm Dr. Franklin Rausch of Lander University, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Adam Powell about his new book, Irenaeus, Joseph Smith, and God-Making Heresy. Uh, Adam, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Well, I wonder if we could begin with you telling us just a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, well, I am currently assistant professor of religious studies at a small school in North Carolina called Lenore Ryan University. Um, I'm the director of the graduate program, so uh, I basically directed an MA in religious studies. Um, yeah, my background is sort of uh, sort of all over the place. Um, I, I did grow up in the southeast near near Atlanta, um, and didn't really get into religious studies per se until I decided to briefly attend a seminary in Texas. Um, and it was really there that I, uh, as the, the book we'll be discussing, of course, is published in a, in a Mormon studies series. Um, obviously I didn't encounter many Mormons growing up near Atlanta. Um, so it was really during my time in Texas that my wife was in the United States Air Force and had many coworkers who themselves were members of the Mormon church. Um, and so I, I was able to really foster an interest in Mormonism during my master's work while, while living in Texas. Um, and I guess um, maybe a, a, one other interesting tidbit as far as my background is probably that I actually went to uh, the UK to do my PhD. Um, and believe it or not, I actually went to the UK to study under someone who was a Mormon studies scholar. Um, and so people find that somewhat humorous that I left America to study Mormonism. Um, but yeah, so I completed my PhD at, at Durham University um, just about three years, a little over, I guess about two and a half years ago. Um, and I've been here at Lenore Ryan ever since. Oh, excellent. And what tra- what did you find interesting about Mormon studies? What kind of attracted you to that subject? Yeah. Um, well, I think initially it was the same kind of fascination that that um, America has had with Mormonism from the beginning, uh, which was you know just uh, as a again as a student in a master's program in religion, I was realizing that it's initially anyway, it's somewhat difficult to label what Mormonism is. Um, is it its own religion? Is it some kind of Christian sect? Um, you know, I was much like your average American in that I knew something was there about polygamy. And I knew something was there about maybe there's more than one God or we all get to be gods or something. 
And that was pretty much the extent of my knowledge of Mormonism. So initially it became um, a fascination, just a kind of curiosity. Um, and I wanted to be able to converse in an informed way with my wife's coworkers. Um, and so I just, I, I began to basically fit it into coursework. So I wrote a couple of research papers. Um, one, one that comes to mind was I was, I was in an ethics class and I decided to write a, a paper on polygamy, um, and whether there was sort of culturally contingent aspects on whether or not polygamy is actually unethical. Um, and so that was kind of my, I guess, my gateway into Mormonism. Well, that sounds fascinating. And as an aside, as for studying um, Mormonism in the in the UK, as a, you know, I study Korean religion in Canada, even though I'm an American. Right. So <laughs> it's just, just these funny things that, that all kind of come together. So, I mean, and, and if we look at your book, Irenaeus, Joseph Smith, and the God-Making Heresy, so you kind of explain how, I mean, if you're, of course, if you're interested in Mormonism, you're going to be interested in Joseph Smith. How does Irenaeus of Lyon uh, get into this? Sure. Um, well, so at the same time, I had, uh, I mentioned I, I was briefly in a seminary. I did not complete a degree there, and I left there. But while I was in a, a fairly well-known seminary in Texas, I took a history of doctrine course. Um, with what I think is it's fair to say is one of the top Irenaeus scholars. Uh, and it was that that class sort of sparked um, just interest in the early church in general. Um, again, growing up, I, I grew up in a, in a sort of what I think is a kind of commonplace kind of evangelical uh, context in the Southeast. Um, and you know, not to poke too much fun at, at that kind of circle, but they're not real strong on church history, typically. Right. Um, and and so, you know, this was new information. I didn't know there was someone named Irenaeus. You know, I didn't know there were uh, these debates raging in the, in the first three centuries. Um, so that, that initially was a separate interest. Um, and in fact, what sort of how it, how I came to blend the two was during my master's thesis, um, which was one day, um, you know, I, I think I've, I've come a long way uh, from this, but at the time it was a kind of very simple idea that, hey, look, you know, Irenaeus seems to believe that we're somehow all going to be gods. And uh, Joseph Smith seems to have said something like that. And so I wanted to do a kind of one-to-one, -one strictly theological kind of comparison. Um, and so that's how the two first came to be kind of put into the same study. Um, and it was from there that I, uh, that I started having ideas that uh, kind of developing on that for my Ph.D. work. Is I right? Is there a name the guy who said you know, God became man so we could become God? That's correct. Yep. Okay. Now, did he mean um, the same kind of thing that Joseph Smith was talking about, or? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, gosh, there. So there's so much to this, right? So, a difficult question. Yeah. So, so here's the thing. I've written uh, in the past. I've I've published on again the kind of strictly theological comparison. So. If you're doing what, again, what I mean by sort of strict theology is you're not bringing in uh, concerns with social or cultural influences. You're not really looking at historical development. Uh, you're pretty much looking at kind of abstract philosophical um, systems as promulgated by these individuals. Okay, so. If, if that's what you're doing is you're saying, okay, Joseph Smith said these things about people becoming gods and Irenaeus said these things about people becoming gods. Now let's look at, did they mean the same thing? Um, ultimately, the answer in that sense is no, I don't think they're doing the same thing. So 
Um, ultimately, for Irenaeus, um, he never, much like the other the other church fathers who talk about deification or, or the Greek theosis, um, he never is willing to close the ontological gap between humanity and divinity. Okay, so so for Irenaeus, um, what he's wanting to do is more clarify for his audience that the sort of tradition of the church maintains that there's this overlap between Christology and what we could call eschatology, or um, I, I sometimes prefer theological anthropology. This kind of notion that there's a a divine kind of will behind where humans are going to end up. Um, so I think for him, what he's doing is saying, um, Jesus Christ came as a kind of second Adam. Um, and this time when Jesus Christ came, he lowered himself, he became uh, God incarnate. And he had this, he, he sort of did everything right this time around that Adam did not do correctly. Um, and so it's, it's kind of, it's that which, which Irenaeus calls recapitulation. Okay, so it's this kind of replaying of history all over again. Um, in in the the God Man of Jesus Christ, um, so I think what he's doing is, is is saying then because Jesus Christ came and was was both God and human, we now are set back on the path where toward ultimate communion with God. Um, so I think that's what he means when he says you know Christ became human in order to he says quote in order to make us uh, what he is. Um, now, uh, anticipating that, that you might then ask what Joseph Smith means, um, it's, it's, this is one of those things where, uh, one of those areas where the comparison, you have to be very careful, okay, about, I think, comparing the two. Because, uh, for one, we have in Irenaeus, we've got, of course, his multi-volume work against heresy. Um, uh, we also have another one, demonstration of the apostolic preaching. So we have these very uh, tidy, kind of systematic volumes where he's he is indeed trying to lay out in a systematic way uh, what the tradition of the church is on these theological topics. Um, with Joseph Smith, we have something quite different. So Joseph Smith's kind of clearest expression of language related to deification really comes in a speech that he gives shortly before his death. Um, and, and for him, he explicitly says to his audience that God used to be a man, that he progressed, uh, in, in Joseph Smith's words, from exaltation to exaltation. Um, until he became God, and that we have the opportunity to do the same thing. Um, now, and there are all kinds of, of course, we in my book, I guess, in some to some degree does, there are all kinds of different contextual differences as well. So the speech of Joseph Smith, uh, for instance, is, is um, on the occasion of the death of a revered member of the Mormon community, so it's a kind of funeral address that he's giving. Um, so I think there is that that aspect is important because he, he's trying to give some hope of, of overcoming death to his audience. Um, but I think then the question becomes, well, so is Joseph Smith implying or even explicitly um, advocating the kind of logical end that would suggest, well, if we all have, we're sort of all progressing by degrees, um, are, you know, is the universe then populated by a kind of infinite number of individual gods, right? Um, I think, again, I think in a kind of theological or philosophical sense, the answer to that really sort of has to be yes. That is sort of what Joseph Smith means. Um, 
But I think what what is important to remember with Joseph Smith is that he's actually being quite consistent on this point. Um, Joseph Smith does close that ontological gap um, because he's essentially a monist. Okay, so he 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 at other times talks about how spirit is actually just pure matter. Okay, so um, the spiritual becomes material in Joseph Smith's thinking. Um, and so likewise, there's no, there is no kind of chasm that has to, to be dealt with separating divinity from humanity. Um, so I think um, he is doing something a little different in, in that he's saying there's, you know, we're all the same ontological category. And so literally God progressed. Uh, and we're doing the same thing, and we have that hope that we um, will continue. The, the phrase they would use is eternal progression. So there's not actually a kind of a stopping point in the future. God himself is still progressing. Uh, but that's the hope, is that you progress into the point where, you know, maybe someone's giving a, a speech about you at some point, right? Um, um, so I think they're using deification in different ways. Um, but uh, I think they have something in common, and that's that they both are expressions of deification that are bound up with, and this is what I was getting at with, you know, the fact that he's giving a speech at a funeral. Um, they're, they're expressions of deification bound up in kind of existential socio-cultural dilemmas as well. So, and, and we'll probably talk more about that in a minute, but that. I think they have that in common, even if they're doing something maybe in a strict theological sense different. Right. Yes. You're, and as you, you mentioned earlier, and I thank you for giving us that great background. This, this isn't, like you said, a comparative uh, theology. You're trying to understand the social context, especially this issue of heresy. Um, so I wonder if you could tell us how you um, how has heresy been defined in the past, um, and how do you use it in your study? Right. Um, right, so, okay, so we'll, we'll start with how, it, how it's been defined in the past. So, um, and, and re- I think, regrettably, in the next few minutes answering this question, I'm going to sound probably fairly postmodern, and I don't really consider myself a postmodern thinker, uh, but I do think uh that there's something, uh, something at, at play and in the way heresy's been defined that has not uh, always been all that helpful for understanding actual religious kind of social conflict. So hopefully I'll, I'll make sense and, and you'll see what I mean. Um, so heresy in the past has uh, been defined through a historical theological lens, uh, sort of unashamedly, um, and is really packaged up and kind of offered to us through, largely through the Christian church, uh, and then largely through the first, say, five centuries or so of the, the, the original church there, and, and uh, even, in a lot of ways, the Western church. Um, so there's kind of a, a very specific historical um, institution that is that has passed on its definition of heresy. And I think probably one of my favorite uh, definitions to, that captures that traditional uh, understanding is one I mentioned in the book by uh, a man named Lester Kurtz, who he's actually defining the heretic, but I think it we can kind of extrapolate from that uh, a definition of heresy, uh, but he calls the heretic a deviant insider. Okay, so someone in the tradition itself who is now deviating away from something. He, there, there's some norm, and he's diverging from that norm. Um, and I think that applies to heresy, which would be, you know, the teachings of that deviant insider or teachings or ideas that are coming from inside the group 
that are sort of leading away from the truth or away from uh, tradition or something like that. Um, that's, you know, I mean, and I list many definitions in the book, but I, I mean, I think that one, that captures how it has been defined uh, traditionally. And I think what all the definitions that you can find um, that are, again, are approaching it sort of historically or theologically, what they all have in common then is actually this notion of error, okay, of kind of falsity or um, that it's wrong teaching. Um, so, so in the Greek, you know, heresis originally meant to choose. Um, but what it quickly meant in, in Christian circles, um, even by the time of Irenaeus in the second century, was essentially something like to choose the wrong philosophical school or to choose to follow the wrong religious leader. Um, to, you know, teach erroneous doctrines or something like that. Um, and I, uh, I think that the reason that it's always been defined that way has to do with essentially the way the Christian church views its own history. And and this is where, you know, you'll have to forgive me for sounding postmodern a little, but but I think because I'm going to use this, I'm going to use the word narrative, which we're probably all sick of hearing at this point. Uh, but but I think it's the, the definition of heresy, the traditional definition is a function of a certain narrative, a Christian narrative that views truth or views its own sort of historical theology as essentially being a kind of biography of truth. Okay. A kind of here's, you know, here's where truth came from. Here's all the ups and downs that truth, you know, had to face. Uh, here's the individuals that, that defended the truth, that preserved the truth. Uh, here's how and in what way it was defended uh, and that sort of thing. But, but largely the narrative is that there was truth. And then here's all the, the things that truth came up against um, and all the different ways that it succeeded in overcoming those those trials or uh, being defended by these very, these bright intellectual minds of, of the past or something like that. Um, and so because of that way of kind of viewing history, um, what ends up happening then is those competing ideas or marginal ideas, or the ideas of minorities within the tradition, or really any ideas that were rejected by ecclesiastical authorities are, are wrong. They're deviant ideas. Um, so they're not just sort of ideas held alongside other ideas. They're the ideas that were causing problems for the truth. Um, and so what you what emerges from that then is this kind of implicit notion, uh, sometimes explicit, I guess, um, in, in that notion of a deviant insider. But the ideas themselves then are kind of insider ideas, but are kind of nefarious, right? Because they they sort of position themselves as potential truth. So originally, the competing idea came from inside. It, it was trying to say it was also the truth. Uh, but eventually, the verdict came out that it was not the truth. Um, and so therefore, you have this notion that heresy kind of emerges from within, uh, but it's a kind of a troublemaker um, from within the ranks kind of thing. Um, so that's kind of my long answer, I guess, to how it has been defined. Um, but to answer the question of, well, then what are, you know, what am I doing with it in this book? Well, I'm doing something very, very different. Um, so this, this book, as you noted, is not a, a theological comparison. And, um, what happened was, um, if I, if I may give just slight 
supplement to the background of it, it is that coming out of my own theological comparison of the two figures, Irenaeus and Joseph Smith, I realized there were a lot of questions that theology wasn't answering for me. Um, so it's not that there was anything um, um, negative or sort of lacking in, in, in the sense of making theological arguments about these two figures. But what I realized is even a simple, a simple fig, um, question like, why on earth? were second century Christians or early third century Christians saying things that even slightly resemble uh, what 19th century Mormons were saying when there's very little evidence that those 19th century Mormons ever read any of these second century authors. Um, and it's, and what they're receiving was sort of always um a unique interpretation of scripture. So you couldn't just say, well, they're saying the same thing because they both have the same scriptures, something like that. It seemed more complicated, I guess. Um, and so I turned to, and this is largely why I went and studied with um, an individual named Douglas Davis at Durham University who's used social anthropology to talk about Mormonism. Um, so when I got to, okay, how, what's kind of the theoretical framework for the study to try to figure out why these two groups espoused ideas that even are similar, even if it's on the surface, they seem similar. Um, what I did was I, I quickly realized that heresy um, could actually be lifted from that theological uh, tradition and actually be a really useful tool for understanding religious conflict. Um, so what I did was I, I basically applied to the notion of heresy what in sociological circles would be a very simple kind of axiom, okay, which, which is basically, you know, when a social group is threatened or opposed or attacked in some way, it fosters solidarity among the group that's been opposed. Okay. Um, so I had this notion that, well, isn't heresy itself opposition? Um, isn't that in, in many ways the very word we've used for a kind of religious, overtly religious form of opposition? And and I started thinking about, for instance, how Irenaeus writes a book called Against Heresy. Okay, so the so sort of from the outset, he's saying heresy, whatever we, however we define that, heresy is the thing that initiated me writing this multi-volume book. Um, so I, I started thinking, well, that sounds a whole lot like what sociologists have known for a long time uh, about kind of collective behavior um, in that we, when threatened by something, uh, if it seems a sufficient threat, we're forced to consider or reconsider our worldviews, right? Um, so basically what I did is I said, how about we use heresy in a kind of social science uh, way and and see what happens. Um, so, um, for for my book, uh, heresy was kind of a uh, a way of talking about. And I'll give you I'll give you the my actual working definition of it in just a second. But heresy was again. So then it was kind of the window into specific forms of religious conflict or religious uh, opposition. Uh, so I, and it was fun for me. Uh, so, I mean, I, so I essentially discarded that traditional definition of heresy, um, which maybe was a bit bold, but, but I, I felt as though when you actually trace, for instance, even what someone like Irenaeus is saying about heresy, um, you realize that, for instance, it's not necessarily an insider 
it's not necessarily a teaching that's, you know, uh, been deemed uh, aberrant or something from within. Uh, so, for, for instance, Irenaeus traces a lineage. You know, he's called one of the heresiologists. So he's tracing these lineages, these family trees of heretics and their schools of thought. And he ends up tracing them all back to, you know, the devil. Um, they're all ultimately this thing that is just sort of diametrically opposed to Christianity. Um, so they might sometimes want to be viewed as um, an insider uh, to help serve their own purposes. But ultimately, it's something that is very much outside of the faith and set against the faith. Um, so all that to say, essentially, and I'll just I'll read the, the actual quote from the book. But the way I define heresy, then, is, a, is as, quote, an ideal type of externally sourced opposition against the beliefs, personal wellness and unity of a religious group and its members often demanding both explanation and subsequent theological renovation by those within the group. Um, and to maybe unpack that a little bit is to essentially say, I end up saying heresy is actually religious opposition from outside the group uh, that tends to attack not only their beliefs, but often them personally, physically and psychologically, um, and as an attack on the solidarity of the group, and that then subsequently forces that group to sort of reconsider uh, their worldview. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you for that. So now we have a, a really, you know, we've laid the groundwork so we can understand what you mean by heresy and how the uh, Joseph Smith and Irenaeus can kind of come together. Um, and you mentioned that you talked about, you know, you were trying to apply social anthropology. So moving into chapter two, the heretical process, here you talk about um, a sociology of knowledge. Could you tell us how this kind of fits into your study? Yeah. So, um, so because I wanted to essentially, uh, I, I wanted to include, because remember, I, I'm trying to figure out why they would be sort of teaching and, and believing things that seem similar. So I couldn't just focus on um, kind of social relations uh, in that sense. I couldn't or I couldn't di divorce social relations from belief systems um, is maybe a better way of putting it. So I knew that, you know, again, even if it's a kind of sociological sociological axiom or something that, you know, a group that's attacked will respond in an attempt to foster solidarity. Um, I knew that there also is an element of, of kind of intellectual grappling with what's happened and that kind of thing. Well, um, it, this is one of those areas, I think, where where people still think that they're onto something new. Um, when in fact, uh, in the case of sociology of knowledge, you have someone like Carl Mannheim, uh, who sort of coins this, this term sociology of knowledge, um, at the, in the early 20th century. Um, and he basically defines the sociology of knowledge as, as this form of sociology that seeks to obtain systematic comprehension, he says of the relationship between social existence and thought. Um, so this struck me as particularly relevant um, because I wasn't just wanting to see the relationship between social existence and social behavior, for instance. I wanted to see that relationship between social existence, that uh, for instance, facing persecution or facing that heresy, that opposition from outside the group, and then thought. What what do they think about that? How do they write up, you know, uh, soteriological beliefs um, while facing that heresy? Um, so 
basically, and I and I love that definition that Mannheim gives us because that's 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 exactly it. So the sociology of knowledge in the book serves as another one of the kind of theoretical uh, foundations uh, for what I'm doing because I'm wanting to look at in a kind of systematic, deeply analytical way uh, what is the relationship between uh, facing persecution in the second century and then writing against heresies or what is the, you know, the relationship between Joseph Smith uh, being, you know, drug out of his house and having hot tar poured on him. And then the fact that when, you know, uh, a, a beloved member of the group has just died, he's wanting to articulate why there should be hope, you know, um, I'm, so I didn't want to divorce those two things. Uh, and I think, if I, just as an aside, I think those are things that are all too frequently separated. Um, we, we have, you know, philosophers or theologians contemplating one half of that equation. And then we have sociologists, you know, crunching numbers on the other half of that equation. Um, and so I, I really wanted to keep those two together and, and recognize that based on ideas like the ones that, that someone like Carl Mannheim gives us, um, that those are sort of indissolubly linked and we shouldn't separate them. Oh, excellent, excellent. And another important part of your um, study are the theories of Hans Moll and his theory of religious identity. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how that fits into your work. Yeah, so so Hans Moll figures very largely in the book. Um, and, gosh, uh, it was literally uh, a theory, his, his what he called identity theory, um, I think hoping it would catch on and be kind of a, a catchphrase. Um, but his his own unique kind of general theory of religious identity was something I really stumbled upon, um, having no idea what it was. I, it was literally a book I found, you know, deep in the recesses of Durham University Library. Uh, his, his his book um, Identity and the Sacred came out in 1976, um, and I started. I just opened it, started reading. And um, what I quickly realized is that the, his theory um, really captures all of the other kind of theoretical groundwork that I was laying. Okay, so he's indebted to the sociology of knowledge. Uh, he's indebted to someone like Lewis Kozer, who was a mid-20th century sociologist talking about that notion that opposition forces kind of solidarity in the in-group. Um, he's, uh, Hans Moll had studied with Robert Merton at Columbia University um, and just these other, these big names in sociology. And, and he had sort of synthesized all of them into this one theory. And his theory basically says uh, that everyone, both both collective groups and individuals, which is important um, because, one, I was looking at two kind of representative individuals. Uh, so I couldn't just um, ignore the, the role of just an individual and their own kind of psychological needs and responses to opposition. Uh, so he, he talks about, the, you know, individuals and groups have identities and identities for him, for Hans Moll basically refer to these, what he calls stable niche, the stable niche in which one kind of locates oneself. And, and I would say this is crucial. He says, and that one is prepared vigorously to defend. Um, so he, he starts off with this idea of identity, uh, which is really this, this kind of safe harbor for the individual and for the group. Um, and says um, that religious identity then is when someone locates themselves in that way within a religious system. Um, he prefers the, the expression meaning system. So a kind of this kind of cluster of values and symbols and ideas and behaviors and things that all give that person meaning. 
Um, and he says that uh, essentially those identities then uh, play a role in religion itself. Uh, and so he gives a very, very unique definition of religion uh, as the sacralization of identity. Um, but what he means, it's unique, for instance, in the sense that he gives a definition of religion that is a process, not a static cultural object. Um, and I could talk all day about Hans Moth, so, so I'm trying to keep that this short. But um, So he gives a very unique definition of, of religion as this sacralizing process of identity. So it's kind of, the way I tend to, to express it is it's kind of, uh, shrouding your identity then in a kind of sacred sphere that helps protect it. Um, and so the way that this then I thought immediately fit with my study was I saw this, these religious groups facing opposition, facing the heresy as I'm defining it. Um, and then sort of either in a kind of dialectical way or maybe even subsequently after the, the opposition, articulating these soteriological ideas about deification. Um, I saw that as these groups and these individuals trying to protect their identities. Um, so, uh, for instance, um, there's a, a fantastic essay that I, I use in the in the book by uh, William Arnold, who who talks about he, he's actually borrowing from Pierre Bourdieu in this notion of doxa. Okay, so doxa refers to implicit, taken for granted beliefs. Okay, so they're not orthodoxy yet because orthodoxy has been explicit, made explicit, and everybody's aware of it. But they're doxa, they're kind of underlying beliefs that, that's helping the group move along, but no one's actually pointed out that they all believe it. Um, but, but Arnold talks about doxa and how heretics, what they do, the, what, the reason they're threatening is that in doing their kind of heretical thing, they reveal doxa, which then forces the in-group to quickly articulate it explicitly in the form of orthodoxy. Um, and essentially that's what I thought was happening in these two groups, um, is they were, they were quickly having to express what they think about salvation and, and deification and the place of the individual in God's kind of scheme for the world. And they were having to do that because of this outside pressure. Well, basically, I, I felt, uh, to, to wrap that up, um, that Hans Moll's theory fit that very well from a sociological uh, angle, where people are essentially having to protect their identities, the thing that makes them feel a sense of meaning and purpose and stability. They're having to protect those by kind of shrouding it in a more robust uh, religious system. They're having to sacralize their identities. Excellent. So, um, so you've been talking about how there's this threat, both in terms of identity and also, in a sense, existentially, because of the persecution that these groups face. So I wonder, you explore this in Chapter 3, could you tell us a little bit about how the situation of uh, Christians in the 2nd century and Mormons in the, the uh, early 19th century, how are the situations they face um, similar, and how are their responses similar? Yeah, so, um, so yeah, chapter three, I, I'm calling it locating heresy, um, because, uh, you know, at that point in the book, it's sort of, it's enough to have, have given quite, quite a, a great deal of theoretical kind of background. But this is, you know, moving into, okay, well, let's literally look at these two groups and what they, they were up against. Well, for second century Christians, um, one thing I immediately and kind of explicitly note in the book is that it's not easy to distinguish the different types of heresy in a lot of ways. So 
earlier when I've given my definition of heresy, I've actually talked about how it's a threefold system and there's um, there's what I'm calling societal heresy, there's personal heresy, and there's doctrinal heresy. Um, and what I basically mean by those is just heresy as a kind of social pressure, uh, heresy as an attack literally on the physical or psychological well-being uh, of the members, and then doctrinal heresy is the more theological one, the, the kind of attack on the beliefs and the teachings of the group. With second-century Christians. Uh, they lived in a in an environment where, for instance, the the societal and the doctrinal uh, really can't be separated, uh, at least not in any easy way. And so, it, already the threefold system I'm outlining, I'm kind of admitting, is an artificial separation for kind of heuristic purposes in the book. Um, but in this case, you have a, an easy way to to illustrate this. For the Greco-Roman world um, of Irenaeus is that you you know people often are familiar with this notion of the Pax Romana, uh, Roman peace, but what they also often don't realize is there's this other uh, overlapping concept called the Pax Deorum, and this was the peace of the gods, right? Well, the two went hand in hand. You couldn't have one without the other. So. Um, religion was largely a civil kind of religion, and there were all sorts of practices uh, that needed to be carried out. And there was a, a definite thought that if you know if you failed in your obligations to kind of perform ceremonies and participate in the civil religion of the empire, that this could um, bring on the wrath of the gods. This could bring on famine or flooding or something like that. Um, and that, so to maintain Roman peace, to maintain social order, was also to maintain the peace of the gods and to continue participating in the civil religion uh, and that sort of thing. So what happens for the second century Christians is, is one of the kind of forms of heresy that they faced was uh, when they often refused to participate. Then they were accused of being criminals. Um, they were accused of being atheists, in fact. Um, and, and they faced a lot of kind of polemical sort of rhetoric. Um, there was a, there's, and it has, you know, this is still in existence today. Uh, there's still this kind of issue of legitimacy. Are they to be understood as a legitimate group? Okay, so uh, they faced, for instance, then, um, opponents calling them a superstition, uh, calling them at best a, a philosophical school. So we have the, the philosopher Galen in the second century who's willing to get, grant them that status of a philosophical school. But really no one's willing to call them a religion, right? Because a religion is a legitimate kind of uh, social institution. Uh, so that's some, you know, briefly, some of the, the kinds of heresy that the second century Christians are facing. Um, what's interesting, I think, because uh, you asked specifically about similarities uh, with 19th century Mormons, uh, this was this was very strikingly similar. Um, so they faced a whole lot of uh, polemical writing, you know, diatribes against them. Uh, trying to say that they were illegitimate in some sense. Um, and often for both groups, the the kind of credibility was was sort of hinged on whether or not they could point to a rich history. Um, so so for second century Christians at the at the same time, the second century, they're um, for instance separating largely from from Judaism now. So the, the two groups are, are branching off and are having their own distinct identities. So um, there's a and there's emerging a kind of antagonism um, that we can read about in Justin Martyr or something like that uh, between non-Christian Jews and sort of Christianized Jews. Um, and 
And one thing that if you think about it that's happening then is when you, they needed their own identity, right? Their own sense of identity, again, a, a major concept in my book. Um, but in sort, of, in sort of cleaving themselves off from Judaism, they're actually losing that. They're losing that history. Um, they're losing that kind of special status that had been off and on anyway, granted to uh, Jews in the empire. Um, well, with, with uh, 19th century Mormons, you have something, a lot of these things uh, remain the same. So they're, uh, they're basically not granted kind of legitimate status. They're a cult. Um, they're uh, dupes who are following this charlatan uh, in the form of Joseph Smith. Uh, but they're certainly not a credible kind of uh, denomination or branch of Christianity or something like that. Um, and so there's a lot of talk about, you know, what are they? Is, is Joseph Smith an imposter? Uh, is he, in fact, a heretic? Um, and these kinds of things. So, that, so that's at least one of the, the, the forms of, of heresy that they're facing that's similar. Um, and I could go on and on. I mean, another important one, I guess, would be the actual physical kind of persecution. Um, you know, of course, 19th century Mormons are not being brought into a coliseum uh, or anything, but as far as the way in which physical persecution was sort of sporadic and localized um, and not consistent, um, not everywhere that they lived and that sort of thing, it's actually pretty similar uh, for both groups. So that, that's some of the similarities. So, um, and I, I, we've taken a lot of your time so far. So, what I um, shifting is so you, you talked about. Oh, I'm sorry. So, how do these groups stay in Chapter Three? How do these groups then respond? Yeah. So, um, so I think uh, for Irenaeus, um, I think he responds um, actually quite appropriately. He he throughout his writings um, tries really hard to establish a history for the group in the form of uh, what he calls the rule of faith, for instance, that there's this kind of consistent tradition within the church that you can always reference or measure teachings against or something like that. Um, he also goes through great, great pains to show that the Hebrew Bible uh, and then the God you know, revealed in Jesus Christ are uh, consistent, that there's continuity. Um, and that, you know, in fact, there's not two different gods at work there. And he's, of course, uh, you know, he's combating some of the ideas of the Valentinian Gnostics that he's writing against um, that would have seen um, the, the Old Testament God as this kind of lower deity that, that created the world just so it would, could kind of mess with creation. Um, but, it, but he's I think he responds in that way. He responds by giving hope to those who have been persecuted. So uh, in the book, I, I talk um, at some length about uh, how Irenaeus repeatedly talks, you know, mentions being um, martyred or being persecuted or having to endure for the faith and that sort of thing. Um, and Joseph Smith, uh, he does something very similar. Um, I mean, I think he, he has some different notions of what kind of what the problem is, what what it is, that, what the opposition is that he is facing. Um, but he also establishes, um, you know, Irenaeus comes up with, with what he calls the economy of salvation, uh, which is what I'm calling a, a soteriological schema, because I'm, I'm wanting to emphasize again that it's not just an intellectual exercise to talk about salvation. It's actually conferring an identity and a worldview on his readers and his followers. Um, well, I mean, I think it's striking that he calls it the economy of salvation. And Joseph Smith comes up with something similar and calls it the plan of salvation. Um, but, you know, Joseph Smith responds with uh, trying to help his followers understand death. Uh, he writes numerous texts. Uh, sometimes letters from jail and this kind of thing, uh, telling them to be steadfast, to endure for, for the truth, 
um, that there's hope that in this kind of thing. And then again, talks about explicitly about becoming gods in a funeral uh, sermon. Um, and basically, I think does the same thing. At least I argue in the book does the same thing in coming up with this plan of salvation. Then that is this kind of big scheme um, that includes history and includes God's involvement in in human history and includes eschatology and includes deification. And it basically sort of I think checks off each issue they had faced. You know, so we. We are a legitimate religion, uh, he says in that um, one of those final speeches he gives, Joseph Smith, that, you know, if, if only I had enough time, I could get everyone to see. Um, they keep calling me a false prophet, but but I just haven't sort of had enough time to explain it all adequately. But we definitely are, you know, the truth. And, and I'm speaking uh, through God's revelation and this kind of thing. So he's still very much uh, wanting to vindicate himself. Um, afford a certain level of legitimacy to his group uh, and give them hope that what they faced uh, has a kind of purpose in human progress. Excellent. So then um, we can, can we say that through this experience of suffering then, uh, to deal with that suffering, they, they look towards exaltation either in the form of becoming a god or becoming like god? Yeah, that, that's what I, I sort of ultimately argue that uh, I think I, in fact, have a section that, that I'm just calling the soteriological self. But, but what I'm, where I'm blending Hans Moll's identity theory then with sort of soteriology and, and the whole debate about deification and what that means is I'm basically saying, well, in the end, it, it doesn't matter so much um, at least from a, a social scientific perspective, whether Joseph Smith and Irenaeus agree on ontological categories, as much as it matters that in the face of strikingly similar forms of persecution and opposition, they both offer their followers and offer their readers and their, their, their listeners um, a kind of identity rooted in the notion that there is future hope and present hope. Um, so it's not just that one glorious day, you know, Christ is going to return and you'll be saved and go to heaven, but it's that even in being persecuted right now, this is an issue of, in the Mormon term, eternal progression. You are progressing right now as you face these things, as you make the right choice right now. Uh, that is part of becoming like God or becoming God or being on the same path that God once was on uh, or is still on or this kind of thing. So, again, it's yeah, exactly. It's it's not it's it's an argument that no longer is bound up in ontological kind of philosophical categories, but is about sort of uh existential dilemmas and what gives them a sense of identity in the midst of that. Excellent. So, um, so yeah, this is, your work is really fascinating. Cause yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I never had thought about things um, in that way before looking at your book and, and hearing what you have to say. I wonder, do you think um, I'm, we've taken a lot of your time and we we're kind of going over a bit. Do you think we've adequately mined this chapter four that we've been talking about resolving heresy? Or is there something else you think that's important that you'd like to share from that? Um, well, I think, yeah, I think so. chapter four, resolving heresy, this is where I talk about the Irenaeus's economy of salvation and Joseph Smith's plan of salvation. Um, and I think, I think one thing, one sort of final thing I could offer and that might serve as a transition, uh, to the final uh, portion of the book would be that in doing this, I guess part of part of the argument that runs throughout the book is that in doing all of what we've just discussed, the religious these religious groups are are also ensuring uh, a kind of brighter future for themselves, right? Because if they allow social and cultural pressures. Uh, to initiate and then be integrated into their meaning systems, their ritual systems, their belief systems, 
Um, then in the future, those same systems can hold up even better to future dilemmas and future pressures. Uh, so that, I would say that's that's part of the argument. And again, it's, it's part of the argument that I couldn't really make uh, if I was just relying on theology and, and especially within that narrative I mentioned uh, that has been held largely in, in the Christian church, that, that historical theology is just this kind of biography of the truth. Well, if that's the case, there's really no room for adapting to socio-cultural pressure, right? You can't, because to adapt would actually be to deviate from the truth. Um, and so that, yeah, I think that's one final thing that, that's sort of there at the end of chapter four and then is sort of mentioned again in the conclusion. Excellent. Thank you. So turning into your conclusion, what do you see as the primary contributions of your work? Um, yeah, I think that the, the work was ad- admittedly pretty ambitious. Um, so, I, so it's up to the reader to know whether I pull it off or not. But, um, but I think, cause I think there were, there were definite, um, somewhat conspicuous layers of, of, um, I guess meaning or or layers of uh, concern that I had in the book. So, uh, so I'm making you know on the one hand I'm making, for instance, very particular arguments about second century Christians and their doctrinal development and 19th century Mormons and their doctrinal development. But on a bigger level, I think I I certainly hope that one of the contributions is a contribution to the ongoing discussions of the comparative method in religious studies. Um, you know, one of when, when I first proposed this idea uh, to my doctoral supervisor, uh, the, the first question out of his mouth was, why would you compare these and sort of how would you defend yourself against someone who thinks the comparative method is dead? You know, I mean, um, and, and I think I think this is where I reveal that I'm not so thoroughly postmodern um, because I don't think the comparative method is dead. Um, I think that, you know, when hopefully when you finish the last line of the conclusion of the book, you see that that was a fruitful endeavor to compare those two things. Of course, there are differences. I try to be very careful throughout that. I'm I'm not saying there weren't differences. I'm uh discussing some of those differences and i'm careful to say that i I haven't just stumbled upon some natural law or some kind of new sociological theory that's going to explain every religious group that's ever thought something about deification or that it's none of that um but i hope that it contributes to that kind of discussion and shows that you can you can still use comparison as a tool for illuminating particular aspects of social processes, uh, of social psychological dilemmas, um, and in this case of kind of the development of doctrine among uh, what we would call new religious movements, uh, because Christianity in the second century, I would argue, was still a new religious movement. Um, So there's that. Uh, And then I would say two other things very quickly in closing uh, as far as the contributions. I think, um, as has probably been fairly obvious in this particular interview, uh, I'm hoping that it makes a contribution to historical theology in the kind of the, the circles of patristics scholars, um, for instance, um, just about um, this notion of, of how should we view history? And in relation to truth, uh, in relation to heterodoxy, um, and this kind of thing. And I think I've seen a lot of positive developments in this regard. Uh, for instance, in particularly in New Testament studies, uh, I have quite a few very close friends involved in New Testament work. Um, and I think they're increasingly starting to look at actual kind of so, what I'm calling just socio-cultural pressures. Um, these people didn't just live in some kind of vacuum and just produce wonderful systematic theological works. Um, 
And so I, I'm hoping that it contributes to that in, in relation to Irenaeus in the second century. Um, and then for Mormon studies, I guess similarly, I hope that I've contributed with this book uh, to what's a relatively small body of work um, that's applying social science and, so, I guess, sociological theory uh, to Mormonism. Uh, it's Mormon studies has typically been dominated by historians um, and not really any anyone with a real strong back. Or not, I shouldn't say anyone. That's not true. But the majority of, of scholars in Mormon studies have been his, trained as historians, not as social scientists. Um, and I think for Mormonism, I'm the, the, this book contributes then to a kind of uh, insight into that pro- process of doctrinal development. For Mormonism in the in the early years, and what has been discussed some, um, which is the issue of its future success. Um, so there's there's always been this kind of curiosity about how did Mormonism reach the level of success that it has with about 15, 15 million members right now, um, when it started in a in a context where there were many other religious groups popping up across America. Um, so I'm hoping, you know, I end the book with a discussion of how these two groups were remained adaptable and they integrated these pressures into their belief systems and that that's largely why they succeeded in the future, because they had a more adaptable, flexible kind of system. So I'm hoping it contributes then to maybe a, a furthering the discussion of why Mormonism succeeded. Well, excellent. Well, thank you very much. And I, we, I, um, again, we've taken a lot of your time, but I'd like to go a little bit more and ask you our traditional question. Uh, what are you working on now? Right. So I'm currently finishing up, uh, in fact, was supposed to have it into the publisher probably <laughs> next week. Um, don't think that's going to happen, but uh, I'm cur- currently finishing up a book on Hans Mall, actually. Um, so it'll it tentatively will be titled Hans Mall and Sociology Religion. And it's really a look at his identity theory um, in relation to competing ideas in the kind of mid to late 20th century and really calling for a kind of reevaluation of those ideas. Oh, excellent. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing how that goes. Yeah, thank you. Right. Well, thank you so much for your time and for, for telling us all about your wonderful book. And I would encourage our listeners to go out and get a copy. Yes, it was a pleasure. Have a good one. You too. This has been Franklin Rausch of Lander University of the Christian Studies Channel, the New Books Network. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll come and listen again soon. Yeah.